think we learn at a pretty young age that we're not supposed to believe everything we read. In fact, I've, uh, I have seen that you're supposed to believe everything that's on the internet. Uh, of course, I read that on the internet. So, so when you have a, a book, like, or obviously we, as we learned at the children's sermon, a book that's actually 66 books in one binding, uh, you know, why should we trust it? You know, why should we trust this over, over other books? Why should we uh, make this one the, the one that we hold up as being uh, trustworthy and authoritative in our lives? Uh, and what could be known about its historical reliability? Uh, we're going to look at some of the way the Bible expresses itself, but we're also going to look at a little bit of how we're supposed to maybe look at this, because I do think this is something that a lot of Christians don't really know how to verbalize, so this sermon's maybe going to help you do that. It's really not that difficult, but sometimes we may, I think we start in the wrong place. Because uh, even more than probably oth any other religion, Christianity presents itself as historic, that this really happened. In fact, I, I try to catch myself, and I don't always do this. I don't want to say that, well, there's a story in the Bible, because when you hear story, what do you think? Once upon a time, you know. I usually try to use the word account <laughs> because that seems this is true, we're saying. It's not just a story. So at its heart, Christianity claims that something extraordinary happened in the course of time. We've celebrated that already in this worship service, something concrete, something real, and something historical. And I don't know if you, if you want to open to Psalm 119. We're, we're going to kind of look at a few in there. Uh, not going to read, but Psalm 119 is a very interesting psalm in a lot of ways. Uh, it's very long. It's the longest psalm by far. Uh, it's an acrostic, uh, which is not a crossword puzzle. Uh, acrostic is where the first letter of the first eight verses all start with the first Hebrew letter. And then the second one starts. If you ever second starts with the second Hebrew letter, and there's these eight-verse couplings that keep going. So if you ever care, uh, wanted to know what the Hebrew alphabet was, you have it here. Uh, my translation has Aleph, and that's the Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. You have all these these Hebrew letters, so it's it's just a way of doing poetry, but it gives us a lot of information. And what you'll find in Psalm 119 is lifting up God's word so high. That's what the whole the whole psalm is about. This is something that's trustworthy. You look at verses 14 through 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Testimonies. You have precepts, statutes, word. They're just synonyms for God's revealed word. And this goes on and on about that. You probably know because this was popularized in a song by Amy Grant, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Again, what's the focus of that verse? Your word, your word, your word. This is ingrained in there. It's so important to Hebrew thought and obviously becomes very important to Christian thought too. So this is what we have in our background. But again, why should we trust this? In the Bible, the New Testament declares that a man named Jesus was born to a virgin. We put that, hit that pretty hard this last month, right? I mean, we go to the mat for that. We're going to sing the last song is kind of a creed that lifts that up. Uh, claim to be God. That's why they killed him, you know. 
did miracles, like walking on water and raising people from the dead, was crucified on a Roman cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven to reign as king of the universe. All of this is lifted up as true. So why should we trust it? it some of it's fairly unique. We talked about that during Christmas time. The, the virgin birth is kind of a one-off. It doesn't happen very often. Actually, quite, quite rare. And so is a resurrection of someone. That doesn't happen. The Jews believed that was going to happen, but not then. That's the end of time. So can we conclude confidently that these are the true without simply presupposing the Bible is the Word of God? And I don't think that's a horrible way to do it. I suppose when I was growing up, and maybe you were that way too, you kind of, your parents, if they believed in it, you kind of trusted them. And that's okay to a point. But as we say, you know, eventually your faith has become your faith and not somebody else's. Well, how do we do this? Well, one way to find out is to approach the New Testament as a collection of historical documents that speak for themselves. And, and we'll look at this. This is hopefully when you get done, there's only three questions that we, that we look at. Are they truly reliable, historically speaking? Just if we're talking about, can we trust that this is even close to what they wanted us to have? And if you answer a few questions, this is how you can find this out. And hopefully we'll dispel some of the myths that are out there, or maybe not myths, but different ways of looking at it that just don't work. Uh, this really isn't super hard, but sometimes the easiest things get missed. And I think this has happened in our day and age. I mean, I don't know if we did a survey. We're not going to do one. But if I had a little survey and said, you know, short answer, why do you trust the Bible is true? And don't do that circular thing, right? We did that last week, you know, because it's God's word. Well, why is it God's word? Because it's trustworthy. But why is it trustworthy? Because it's God's word. Kind of reminds me of an Andy Griffith episode. There was a... What was it? The Whitfields and the Carters. It was like the Hatfields and McCoys. And they were talking to Mr. Carter, and they keep shooting at each other, you know, feuding. He says, well, why are you, why are you shooting? Because he's a Carter. Well, why are you feuding with him? Uh, or why are you shooting at him? Because we're feuding. And why are you feuding? Well, because he's a Carter. Well, why are you shooting in the car? Because he's feuding. He's looking at Andy's just kind of like, okay, circular reasoning. You know, there's no real, they don't, nobody even knew why they were feuding. And sometimes we do that. It's like, I hope for you in your heart, you know, it's true. And we talked about the end of, in, in last week, that there's evidence, there's eyewitness evidence, there's evidence that we call embarrassing evidence that, that his historians look at and say, well, if it, this is embarrassing to Peter, you wouldn't put it in there if it wasn't true. Um, excruciating evidence that they're, they lived and died for this word. And then, you know, the outside evidence, uh, the external evidence of different types of things we found outside the Bible that help. But the first thing you have to think about, all this is a translation. We just did this with Psalm 119. This is all Hebrew. And if you look at Hebrew, it's very pretty, but it goes from right to left. So when you, if you have a, a Bible, and you knew, usually we open it like you have to turn it over and go the other way. Kind of a weird way. I think left-handed people would do better in Hebrew, maybe. I don't know. But it's all translated. So are our translations accurate? Because if that's not true, now we're in trouble, right? And although translation from ancient languages is neither easy nor simple, scholars have been working at it for centuries, and we have so much information on what these words mean. 
It's really cool, more than any other ancient language. So we have a very deep knowledge of both ancient Hebrew for the Old Testament and what's called Koine Greek, uh, ancient Greek in the New Testament. It really makes it possible for genuine, accurate, correct communication to occur through translation. In fact, if, if, you, if you talk to an atheist scholar, they'll say, oh yeah, these are translated right. That's not a problem. You ever worry about that sometimes? What if somebody comes along and translates this in kind of a wackadoodle way? That's a theological term, wackadoodle. It's not, a, it's not good. Um, taking something that means one thing and translating it the way you want it, it's God has determined we're not going to do that, and we'll see why in a little bit. It, it, it just You can do it dishonestly, but you're going to be found out. And so that we have, the translations are accurate. You can go back. We have them. I've got them on my computer. I've got them on this iPad. I've got the Hebrew. I've got the Greek. I can go back and look and see. And you can't just translate things anyway. We've got people here that are ESL, you know. Somebody's going from Spanish to English. You can... You can say whatever you want, but isn't the whole idea to translate accurately. So we've got that. We've got that is something, the translations are accurate. We can trace back and, and do that well. And only a very, very small percentage of the Bible content has proven difficult. There's a few. You'll get this. You ever heard the, the group or the term Selah? It used to be around. I think we w I went, they were in Omaha oh, 15 years ago. It was a, it's a Christian uh, singing group, Selah. Well, that's a, that's a word in the Old Testament. You'll see it in the Psalms. We don't know what it means. So this group called themselves that just to be, an, I don't know, annoying maybe. But we think maybe it's some sort of musical marker, but we just don't know. You know, now, when you leave today, the fact that we don't know exactly what Selah means, is that going to change your salvation? or anything? So I don't, I don't know. Well, maybe we'll find someday. We have what we need. But there's just a few verses you'll get once in a while. You'll have a verse that in one translation will have in there, one won't, because we don't quite know if it should be there. But you've full disclosure, there's very few, and none of them have anything to do with doctrine that matters. Now, if, if God was asking me, and he doesn't tend to do that very often, and maybe you, I would say, well, why don't you just make it 100%? You know, what is this 99.9 .9 thing? I don't know. This is the way God decided to do it. But is it reliable? Well, yes. So translation. Now, the next one is, were the original sources accurately copied? Because this is old stuff. You know, we're reading Psalm 119. We're not quite sure when this was written, but probably between 2,600 and 3,000 years ago. That's an old book. How do we know that it's what it's supposed to be? Well, there was a group, this is just for the Old Testament. Um, there was a group of Jewish scribes uh, that kind of sprung up after Christianity started called the Masoretes. And so what we had and what we studied in seminary was called the Masoretic Text of Hebrew. And the latest, ver or the earliest version we have of that was from the 10th century A.D. So you think about a book like Genesis, we think probably Moses wrote that. If we put Moses in the 15th century B.C., that's a big difference. So people would say, how do we know we got what we need? These guys had passed this down. They started a long time ago, but we just didn't have anything that was very recent. Well, you probably remember that there was a Bedouin shepherd that was walking around an area of the Dead Sea in the 1940s and found some scrolls around the Dead Sea. So you know what they called them? The Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, didn't think about that one for a long time. 
And what, what we found, you know, we found every book in the Old Testament with the exception of Esther, which doesn't mean it's not canonical. We didn't find it. They were using it as paper to burn. Interesting, right? Found a lot of other stuff, too. Helps us understand the Qumran Essenes with, uh, around the first century, which, you know, was around the same time Jesus was, which is kind of cool. But what we found this, and I got the opportunity, uh, before I went to seminary, I received a scholarship from the uh, uh, University of Iowa School of Religion. Well, to receive the scholarship, I had to drive down there, uh, living in Waukee at the time. And so we drive down there, and lo and behold, the guy who was presenting was an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that was kind of fun. He had all these things that you could walk around and look at. He had a question and answer at the end. And one person stood up and said, so what did the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us? And I will never forget what he said. He said, it told us that the Masorites were really, 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 really good at what they did. Because the Dead Sea Scrolls are predate Jesus. And our before then, earliest copy we had was a thousand years newer. And they look at them and there's no difference. They were just really good. We have the whole scroll of Isaiah and nothing different. I mean, so that gave a lot of credence to that. The Masoretic text was good. So that helps us essentially with the Old Testament. And you see that again. Psalm 119 comes up. For I find delight in your commandment, which I love. Well, you can trust them. That's why he's so happy about this. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes because you can trust them. That's what, you know, Psalm 119 just assumes that, that we can have a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it's a real light that really shines like it's supposed to. Now, in the New Testament, we have 5,700 distinct pieces when it comes to the New Testament. There will be a test, so, but it's open book, which is nice. Uh, the Bible's always open book, I hope. Many going back to the first three centuries. Some include the entire New Testament that we have found. These go back third century, fourth century, the whole thing. In, in book form. Uh, they allow us to reconstruct with a huge degree of confidence what the originals said. We'll look at that next week and what we, prof what we profess as an evangelical free church. It's in our statement of faith. But think about this. By comparison, for Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, which nobody questions, we have at most 10 reliable copies that are readable. The earliest of which dates 900 years after Caesar, but nobody says, is it, do you get that in history when you went through history class? Well, we're not sure this guy was really real. It's interesting. The Bible stands evidence. It's really, really, really good. But this is the one we'll end on. It's, it's the third one. How do we know we have the correct books in the Bible? I remember as a kid uh, reading comic books, and on the back of the comic book, there was this thing you could, sign, you could send in for the lost books of Moses. You know, I was a Christian kid, so I thought, well, well let's get them. So I send in my $1.99 and, I don't know, probably five or six, you know, serial top boxes or whatever you're supposed to do. And you know what it came? It's called the Apocrypha. It's the books that we already knew. They weren't lost. They maybe, were, maybe the person there couldn't find them, but we, we knew what they were. It was a scam. And it came the same time I got the sea monkeys. Anybody else get sea monkeys? Anybody remember that? <laughs> you know what those were? Little brine shrimp is what they were. So anyway, if you have a beta fish, they like them. But how do we know we have the right ones? Are these lo and you see that all the time. Well, the Old Testament, I think, is easy. We, we, Jesus, you just go back to him. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law till all is accomplished. Jesus thought it was true, so if Jesus is right, we got the Old Testament. It makes it kind of easy, right? But the New Testament, the really, there's a few things to look at, and you have them in your outline, you can look at them. Is there, do these books have what we call intrinsic quality? Where we usually use that term is, is the intrinsic worth of a person, that every person is made in the image of God. There's worth there whether or not we say it is or not, no matter if they're, you know, in the womb or on a machine. The intrinsic worth is there because they're an image bearer. That's where you hear that. You mean, there's an inherent worth. So do the books have inherent worth or they only have worth when somebody, another group, gives them authority? That's a big key, isn't it? Does somebody have to give these authority or do they already have authority? Because the church has to give it to them. And that's a big line of demarcation. You're obviously going to get my point of view, and it's certainly the E-free point of view. But the answer to this determines where the main authority lies. Do faith communities create or recognize a book's authority? That's the key. Do we make the authority? I mean, is the, is the Bible authoritative when you say it is? When I say it is? When a bunch of guys in 381 said it was? even though they didn't say it was, but that's the historical. They just wrote them down. That's important. Do you create or recognize? R.C. Sproul, that many of you I know still podcast, passed away a couple years ago. He had a great analogy with this. Um, he talked about uh, somebody who fought, found this, this big stone. It looked like a gemstone. And they brought it, this huge thing. They bring it into this vault. And they want to figure out, so they bring, I guess they call them gemologists, um, gem experts. And they bring this guy in, and he kind of cuts around and looks at it and does the thing, and I don't know, bites it, whatever they do. That's, you do that with gold, I guess, right? You probably don't want to bite a diamond. That might not help your teeth. Um, but, but he gets it, and he finally says, this is the biggest, most precious diamond ever found. Now, did, when it... When did it become a diamond? When that guy said it was? No, he recognized it was a diamond. He didn't make it a diamond. And that's what we say about the Bible. We recognize it's from God. We don't make it from God. You go back to Jesus, right? Does Jesus become Savior in your life? Does he become the Savior of the world when you say he is? He becomes Savior of your life, certainly. But no, he's Savior whether you say it or not. That's intrinsic quality. So the key question, when did these books become God's authoritative word? And this is another one just to remember. You remember there's a few things and you get this. And we've had this, if you've been in my Bible study, you've heard this, when they were written. The Chosen does some interesting things with this a couple places um, where they're kind of talking about, they have John there and he's trying to figure out how to start and all that. And it's just, well, that's really cool to get a chance to watch that. I don't know if it worked that way, but somehow they figured it out, right? Uh, We'll talk about it a little bit next week. But that's when they became, when, when, when John wrote, in arcane, ain't logos, you know, Greek for in the beginning was the word. Now we got God's revelation. And it keeps going. Whether I recognize that is pretty much irrelevant of, of its authority. It's relevant to me, certainly. But doesn't that make sense? I don't do this very often, but somebody say amen or... All right, it makes some. I mean, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it does make sense, right? Because 
Think about that. If it's true that the, the Council of Nicaea, that Athanasius, who wrote these books down because they were trying to figure out the nature of Christ and they wanted to use the right source material, we are there. I mean, 300 years we had a Bible, right? Did these people that Paul went to make these churches say, well, we really don't have, we don't know if this is authoritative or anything, but here you go. We already had the Bible. I mean, it makes so much sense. And I know, I know people get confused about that. It's not that hard. J.I. Packer, another good theologian, the church no more gave the New Testament canon, gave the church it New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. Newton did not create gravity. He recognized it. It was already there, or the moon would be going off, you know. It's a recognize versus create. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's getting received text from who? Well, probably, and he lists this is about the resurrection. So he lists a lot of people that saw the risen Lord, Peter and disciples and James, and last of all, him, that died for our sins according to the scriptures, which there would be Old Testament stuff. So you see that received idea. Receive. We receive what God reveals. We don't create what God reveals. So the New Testament is ultimately self-authenticating, uh, with the books having these three main attributes. And these are the ones that this all comes from. If you want to read a really good book about the canon, and the canon is not the thing, it's the means the measuring rod. Um, we never shoot these books out of a canon, although it would be kind of fun. Uh, maybe, maybe one of these weeks we'll get one of those little Nerf cannons. But, but the idea of the canon one end is the idea of its measuring rod. This is what the authority is. So how do we know what, that we have what we need? And, and Michael Kruger does a wonderful job of this in, in Canon Revisited. It's pretty long, but he comes up with these three things, and I think these are so key. The first attribute is a divine quality. It bears the marks of divinity, including beauty, ef effectiveness, and harmony. And there's some, this is kind of subjective to some extent. I mean, I look around, how many of you have read the Bible and it just, it's different, isn't it? I mean, you can read a poem or hear a song, and those are good too, but a lot of the songs that hit us are based on the Bible. You know, and here's an analogy here. Psalm 19, not 119, starts out, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And then Paul picks up out in Romans 1, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they were without excuse. He's talking about you can look out on the stars and see that there's a God. You might not understand your sinfulness yet, but you're an image bearer. You should see there's something greater. So seeing that points to something more. Well, like creation, these books bear that imprint of his authorship. I mean, if you're a believer, you look up and you see how the, the planets work and the stars. It's like back to Sir Isaac Newton. It's like he believed in God because of what he looked out and see the sky, see the sky. But First Corinthians talks about that. There's this, there's something about it. It's subjective, yes, but it's real. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So yeah, you can convince somebody that we got what we need. Atheists believe that. In fact, Jesus even said it, the demons believe. 
believe what? Yeah, they believe the Bible is accurate, but it doesn't change their lives, right? Paul's saying something different has to happen. That's that subjective part. So there's a divine quality to it. It's a hard, but there's also corporate reception. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's pattern is always to work through a community of people. He doesn't make covenants with individuals. He makes them with people. And we become individually part of it through faith, accepting the grace. So the church's reception of the books, it's natural and inevitable if they are God's word and the role of the church is to ref reflect the book's authority, not determine it. And another analogy is a thermometer versus a thermostat. If we came in here today and the heat, our thermostat was out of whack and it was on 25, you would be wanting me to hurry up, right? Probably do anyway. So a, therm a thermometer just tells us what the temperature is. It doesn't determine anything, right? The church is like the thermometer. It, it, it receives it. It shows us where it is. A thermostat determines something. Well, who does that? Well, that's the Spirit. That's God. He's the one that does that. And we'll talk about this next week, but I think God can get his word right. I think he's powerful enough to get it right. Why did he do it the way he did? I don't know. Well, we'll talk about that maybe last week too. So books are not canonical because they're recognized. They're recognized because they're canonical. John 10, Jesus kind of, he's talking about people believing in him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's a, there's a connection to God. It's not just knowing the words. And the corporate reception, we see the churches receiving that, even in the first century, receiving these texts, this authoritative coming on. And then finally, apostolic origins. This is an important part too. These writings bear the authentic message of the apostles. First Thessalonians, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your believers. When you came to believe, it wasn't the person who told you that changed your heart, right? It was the Holy Spirit through those words. That's the way it always is. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to us. We've got what we need. This Second Timothy was the last book written. We've got what we need. Well, maybe Revelation was later, but most of them were written. You know, so it's not just about Christ's redemptive work, but the product of it. You know, that's, this is the product of Jesus. It's not the opposite. The final and complete set of Revelation offered once for all in the past, and we see these in both Galatians and Jude. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let them be accursed. Does Paul sound like he thinks we got the right stuff? And then Jude 1, beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is it. This is the final covenant. The new covenant's it. You don't need more books. Anybody wants you to get more books as authoritative as the Bible are selling something, in my opinion. It's a power grab. Every Christian cult does this. Every new religion does this. The Bible's not sufficient. Think about that, maybe, as you go home. What about 
how you're supposed to follow Christ and believe about him is not in the Bible? What about it's not sufficient? The problem is it's not, that it's not in there. That's, that's, it's in there. It's just we don't know it. We don't let it speak to us. So when you take all this and then realize that the only Christian books dated confidently to the first century are the very ones that finally made it in the New Testament, most of them already recognized by Christians as authoritative by the first century's end. You know, God saw to it that we get what we need. It's really what it comes down to. Sometimes it's just about the character of God. So think about the, there's a divine quality to it. It changes lives. We even see Muslims getting, getting uh, even today, getting dreams who are seeking God who get told to go find the book. Why? Because in it lies life. Because it points to the Savior. So we have to remember that this is, this is the key. There's plenty of information. And some people, if you're thinking, if you're a Christian, thinking I'm going to use some of this to help people, they may not agree with you. I can't change that. You know, we just, just tell them what I've told you is true, whether they believe it or not, it's up to them. Uh, but let's know why we believe it. Divine qualities, corporate reception, apostolic origins. We have plenty of reasons to believe what God gave us is true. And if you don't, if that's not enough, is Jesus reliable? In John 14, but the helper, he's talking to the apostles here, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Why did he think he did that? Was that just personal? So when they're having a down day, oh, remember Jesus? Said, well, maybe, but I think it's more than that. I think, as Peter says, as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, these are the guys that either wrote what we have or were associates of those that wrote. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So if nothing else, you put it in the character of Christ. And this is the line, actually, from my Old Testament professor. Do we believe that God saw to it that we have what we need? Wouldn't it just be like God to give us exactly what we need in his word? That's what we profess for lots of reasons. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us your word, that we have lots of evidence, lots of reasons, uh, lots of arguments, lots of cases to make that it's true. For each one here, I hope it becomes true in their heart that they realize that it is life-giving because it points to your Son. May we always remember that if we want to get to know you better, we look at your word, let Jesus take us by the hand and show us. We pray in his name. Amen.